Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. So excited. I know I say that every time, but I truly am so excited about this conversation with Victor Davis Hansen. He is a senior fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is also a military historian and he is just a fascinating person. Today, we're going to talk about how postmodernism and moral relativism have affected not just our view of our country, but also foreign policy. And I learned so much from him in this. And it is going to uh, not just kind of teach you why American foreign policy is the way that it is and how we got to the place that we are, but it's also um, going to make you think about your worldview in general and the worldview that is being taught in academia and is being perpetuated by corporate America and in the media. And he also leaves us with some wisdom and some advice that I found like really courage, uh, inspiring and um, just very fortifying. And I know that's something that we all feel like we need. So again, just so looking forward to you guys hearing this conversation and uh, sending me all kinds of positive feedback about it, because I know you're going to love it. So without further ado, here is Victor Davis Hansen. Thank you so much for joining me. First, I think, well, I think a lot of people listening and watching know exactly who you are. They have watched your interviews. You are a guest on Fox News a lot. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the Hoover Institution and uh, the mission of the institution and what your role is there first. Well, it's 100 years old, and the institution was founded by Herbert Hoover uh, in 1920. And originally for the first, say, 45 years, it was an archival uh, library centered in the middle of the Stanford campus. And its purpose was, in Hoover's words, to uh, collect all of the documents that he could find in his food relief efforts to feed the, the impoverished and famished after World War I, and then to discover the roots and origins of the Russian Revolution. So the practical effect was he brought back millions of documents from war-torn Europe in 1919, 20, 21, and then he got a lot of the white, so-called white Russians, that's the term for the anti-red Russians, and to put their papers at Hoover. And then for the next Oh, 50 years, uh, the tower was built, the, the iconic tower is built in 1947, but the point was it would be going to be an archival library for the issues of war, revolution, and peace. And then he had a mission statement that the institution was going to promote limited government, free enterprise, and human freedom. Sometime in the 40s to the mid 50s, that changed, or I should say it was augmented to a research center with fellows. And then it made a, uh, Hoover was in a constant war with Stanford University, Stanford being very liberal, he being very conservative. At various iterations of the institution, it had degrees of autonomy and then subservience. And finally, it was worked out, he felt right before he died in the, in the late 60s with uh, the appointment of a very young, dynamic Glenn Campbell. And the story of the institution for the next 60 years until 2015 were two 30-year uh, directors, Glenn Campbell, wow. John Rayson, who created the, the current Milton Friedman, Robert Conquest, Tom Sowell, Shelby Steele, conservative uh, trademark. And now 
because Stanford has got Silicon Valley money and it's so huge. And it's, as you know, the liberal left has become the progressive hard left. There's a constant struggle to remain uh, autonomous uh, with a lot of pressures from Stanford. And that's where we are today. Yeah, I've, I've always wondered about that. When you think of Stanford, you don't really think about conservative values. And there are many of you who hold such conservative values that come out of the, the Hoover Institution. Uh, could you talk about how you got involved with the Hoover Institution? And a lot of you, uh, a lot of people listening know your story. But for those for those who don't, can you just tell kind of a brief summary of how you got to have the voice that you do and how you kind of got plugged into the circles that you're in now? Well, I graduated with a PhD in classics at 26 in 1980 from Stanford. And then I had grandparents and parents that were not able to take care of this farm. So I had a brother who was going to medical school and the two of us came back and we farmed the 180 acres. I did that full time for about five years. And then in my late 20s, I went to Cal State Fresno, the nearest campus, and started a Latin Greek classical studies, ancient history program. That got pretty big. I did that for 21 years and wrote books on history, classics, agrarianism, modern and ancient farming, and op-eds. I started to write op-eds in the 90s. And then somewhere after 9-11, I became a regular columnist for National Review. So I did that for 20 years and I was appointed uh, to the Hoover Institution in 2003, 2002 and three, and I did both. I was a professor of classics and I went up to Stanford, which is about 180 miles from where I'm speaking at my farm. And then I transitioned in 2004 completely. And I've been there, oh, for the last 17 years at the Hoover Institution. And I, my responsibility is to, as I was told, my contract is to write commentary on political events, try to produce scholarly books um, every three or four years, and in addition, books that appeal to popular issues, try to do your part as a Hoover citizen at retreats with the donor and overseer class and promote funding for Hoover, and then finally, have institutional support. So I I run the largest task force at the Hoover Institution called the Military History Working Group. And we, and I edit along with my managing editor, David Berkeley, something called an online magazine called Strategica. And the purpose of that group is to bring about 40 scholars world over of all different political persuasions and to discuss contemporary crises, China, the Middle East, Taiwan, uh, Iran, in the context of history, what does history have to tell us about these particular crises? And you can find that every three weeks online under the uh, rubric Strategica. And that's exactly what I want to talk to you about. I I saw an interview um, that you were a part of in a documentary, and I, I watched this several months ago. And as soon as I um, started watching it and listening to your answer, you were talking about how the postmodern worldview has affected liberal foreign policy, in particular under Barack Obama. And I found what you were saying so fascinating that I immediately uh, jotted you down and said, OK, I want to talk to Victor Davis Hanson about this because I I had never heard it talked about in those terms. Obviously, we know as a from conservative perspective, we hear the apology tour uh, by Barack Obama and how he kind of desired to lower the ranking 
of America and kind of do away with what they might call the myth of American exceptionalism or American greatness. But I never thought about it in terms of kind of this larger postmodern movement or worldview. Can you talk about that? What postmodernism is and how yeah. it's kind of affected in particular liberal foreign policy over the past couple decades? Well, we all know what modernism and that was a reaction to traditional and classical Western civilization. So it meant in art, you could you could paint something like Jackson Pollock that had nothing to do with what your eyes saw. Or in poetry, you didn't have to rhyme or have a poetic vocabulary. Or in school, you could bring in subjects, you know, like sociology or anthropology that weren't part of the classical curriculum. So it meant it was a reaction against the mores of the last 2,500 years. People would have sexual congress that were not married. Uh, people who were outside the nuclear family would have viable alternatives, etc. Postmodernism just means after modernism. And what was different about postmodernism, they didn't just reject traditional America, they rejected the means of adjudication, the whole system. So they said to the modernists, your problem is you're reacting to traditional. We don't believe there are facts. We just think a ruling, largely white class created a system and called it rational, but it was rigged because it's not based on truth because there is no truth. Truth is what any particular person says and it becomes truth only when they have power. So it was a revolutionary but entirely nihilistic uh, idea and it came from you know Friedrich Nietzsche and Hegel and the German nihilists, but it also was imported first uh, to France, Michel Foucault in the 1960s and 70s, Lacan, Derrida, and now it's here in the university. And this woke culture that we see is a manifestation. And how that works out practically is it says to Americans, you know, you think you have a constitution. It was basically, you've been fooled. It was just a bunch of white slave owners who rigged a system and called it truth, freedom, declaration of independence, but it perpetuated their oppressions. And then they would say, you know, you think you're better than uh, other countries or that your safety or prosperity or freedom is preferable to that in Venezuela. But that's just because you've artificially uh, defined those words, given them false definition. Who is to say that something is not better. So it's a very dangerous ideology because it doesn't it doesn't reflect reality. The people who promulgate it are usually very white, very wealthy, very privileged, right. and they don't live by it in their own lives. I mean, they put their kids in private school, they want them to go to the Ivy League, they're professionals, they make a lot of money, they have beautiful homes. So they really do believe in concrete realities and hierarchies and privilege. And they mask all that by saying that people who do not have privilege the white working class in particular that they despise, which lacks the culture of the wealthy and the sympathy of the poor in their eyes, they lob that on them. They say, you have privilege, and that virtue signals an exemption they seek from their own privilege. All right, guys, got to take a quick break to tell you about Annie's Kit Clubs. They have the perfect subscription box for both boys 
and girls, it's really hard to keep your kids off screen and still keep them entertained. And Annie's Kit Club has a solution for you. Uh, they've got two different options for your kids. So they've got the Young Woodworkers Kit Club, which is a monthly subscription box that puts real tools into your child's hands. So it starts with this great kid-sized hammer. And then they also receive an all-in-one woodworking kit with the materials and the tools that they need to make an awesome project with minimal supervision. So you don't have to go to the crafting store or look up instructions online. They give you everything that you need. They also have another club that is the Annie's Creative Girls Club, which sends two fun craft projects every month, complete with easy to follow instructions. So you can kickstart her creativity through painting, beading, and more. And through this, kids develop actual skills. They master real world building or new crafting techniques while expressing their creativity. So go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. Save 75% off your first shipment. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie to save 75% off your first shipment. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. And how do you think this affects, this kind of view affects foreign policy? How did it affect some of the decisions in your mind that Barack Obama made in his so-called apology tour, even the Iran nuclear deal, what some people would call appeasement towards hostile foreign powers. Do you think that that did have an effect on Obama's administration and the policies that he pushed forth? Oh, yes. And that's a good question. It, it affects it in so many insidious ways from the pragmatic to the ideological. Let's take the ideological. It basically says when we look at the Middle East and we see that Israel is a uh, constitutional republic, a democracy, it honors freedom. We can't really say that because those reflect artificial values that we put uh, importance or value on that are not fair to other alternative systems, i.e. the Palestinians or the Saudis or the Libyans. And therefore, we have no right to go into that area and judge one group over the other. And therefore, uh, if anything, we have to apologize to people in the past because our dynamic economic system was built on exploitation and colonialism and imperialism are the only legacy right. of the West. And so that's one problem. But in a very superficial sense, it sends a signal to our opponents that we are very weak in the sense that they can use our own uh, absurdities as weapons against us. And I'll take a good example from foreign policy. If we know that the Chinese sort of corrupted the World Health Organization to lie about the origins and the nature and the transmissibility of the COVID virus. And if we know that China has a million Uyghurs in camps or destroyed democracy in Hong Kong or destroyed the culture of Tibet, it doesn't really matter because then they come back to us and say, you know what, you're just uh, a typically racist Western country and you oppress Chinese students. Right. And every time you find a so-called quote unquote Chinese military attache on your campuses, that's just an excuse for your blanket condemnation condemnation of Asian people, just like the 19th century yellow peril. So our enemies look at this and they say, wow, we're just going to mimic the um, the complaints of the, of the left and they take it seriously and it disarms them. And so now in the Biden administration, we're losing sort of that, that edge or that desire we had to stand up to China's uh, crimes. And it's very, I mean, it can be, it can, 
enter the realm of the absurd. When bin Laden was at his peak, he and uh, Dr. Zawahiri wrote a book. And, I mean, there was a book published by Raymond Ibrahim, all of their collected writings. And they were accusing us, believe it or not, of decadence because we didn't have campaign finance reform. We didn't f sign on to radical global warming ideology. So they just read American newspapers and said, half the country is trying to eat itself alive. We're going to join that cannibalistic attack on the West. And so self-criticism and self-reflection is really important for society. We're the only culture or civilization in the West that does that. But sometimes it gets to excess and, and turns from constructive criticism to cannibalistic self-hatred. Yep. And Joe Biden actually recently explicitly said that um, he had a he had a phone conversation with Jinping and that he kind of had to understand that, you know, that he has different priorities, that it's culturally different, that China, you know, the reason that they are doing what they're doing with Taiwan or Hong Kong or the Uyghur Muslims, um, it just has to do with different priorities of the regime. It has to do with, you know, different cultural norms. Um, and I was really alarmed to hear that, but I'm afraid that there's a lot of people in charge, a lot of people in what you might call the elite class that doesn't disturb them at all. And they're perfectly fine with that kind of mentality. And they actually think that America weakening or kind of going lower on the totem pole will be better for the whole world. What do you think the consequence is if America does continue to go down this path of kind of shrinking and trying to lessen our power in the name of, I don't know, tolerance or intersectionality? Well, we, we don't appreciate the fact that the reason that you or I can, when this epidemic ends, can get on a plane and there's going to be common rules and regulations, how it lands and takes off and the safety requirements it must meet, or how we get on a cell phone and who we communicate with Asia or Latin America or how what or is legal or illegal in trade. The whole system of global cooperation is based on Westernism after World War II and Western technology. And the enforcer, if I could use that term, of this system is, to be frank, the United States economy, which is the largest in the world. It's almost in some terms of measurements, twice the size of the Chinese economy. And we do that with one uh, fourth of the population. So it's an, it's an astounding achievement. And we're critical to make the world work. When we doubt ourselves, as you pointed out, and then other people see, you know what, the United States doesn't really believe in itself. It doesn't really believe in the system. And we're going to take advantage of it. And we know how to take advantage of it. We just emulate the left's hatred of the system. And then they're kind of befuddled. They don't know quite what to do. They don't want to be called racist or sexist or homophobes or nativist or xenophobes. And so they become paralyzed. In the case of China and Joe Biden, there's two things going on very quickly. One is that our elite, our bipartisan Washington to New York elite and Silicon Valley to Hollywood elite, so many of them are compromised by China, whether it's the NBA who can't say a word right. in object objection or it's Hollywood who calibrates their pictures on the, on the orders of Chinese to eliminate black actors that they deem too dark and wouldn't be acceptable to the lucrative Chinese market or the Biden family itself. Joe Biden's son, Hunter, who still has interest in China. I can't believe that he still retains interest in the Chinese Communist-sponsored uh, company. Or it's Mr. Blinken, the Secretary of State, 
who has had a lucrative career in Chinese investment, all of them are, are compromised either financially or ideologically. And what was unusual about Trump, uh, to break that cycle, I guess the only person who could do that was someone who was not only not part of it, but was a little bit uncouth, I accrued, loud and just said, I don't really care. I'm going to go into this glass store of hypocrisy and break everything up. And of course, he wasn't reelected. And then people said, well, we stopped that. And they're now even more emboldened than they were than before he came. So I'm not optimistic that we're going to have the wherewithal to resist the Chinese in the way that they need to be resisted. I've been interested to see other countries like Australia and France kind of criticize the United States for the kind of self-loathing mentality that a lot of people in the elite class have taken on or our softness against China or unwillingness to call out China. Does that surprise you at all that some of these more what you might consider progressive countries are actually stronger in their stances on some of these positions than the United States is? You know, it doesn't. And I can explain why very briefly. There's two or three reasons why. They have a long colonial and imperial history that other than the Philippines at the turn of the 20th century, we have not really had. And so when we start to become woke or radical, and we did it in the 1930s, they get scared because they're worried that we would become not the stabilizer enforcer of uh, the post-war order, but rather ourselves, sort of a revolutionary society that might join their enemies or critics and saying, you know what, we're woke now. We reject our own Western past. We're no longer a Western country. And you guys colonized Asia and Africa, and you still uh, have influence in India and North. And we, we're not. We're free of that. We're a revolutionary society, and and they're afraid. Secondly, because. They're very dependent upon us. They have asymmetrical trade with us. They do not, until Trump came along, the vast majority of the NATO allies did not meet their 2% defense contributions. More do, I think eight do now out of uh, 23 countries. But my point is that they, for practical reasons, they say, you know what, the U.S. has to be firm. It has to be a protector. Our role are the ancient Greeks. They're the ancient Romans. They're the muscle and the economy. We're the philosophers. We're going to ankle bag them, make fun of them, tweak them. But we just we only can do that if they stay firm. They're the parent. We're the whiny juvenile. But when the parent acts like a hippie, then the juvenile says, wait a minute, who pays the bills? Who enforces? Yeah. Who tells? And that's where we are right now. They they don't they're scared stiff. And they're scared stiff because if America goes hard left, it could, in theory, be as critical of them as, as it is itself. And they don't want that right. to happen. You know, that's interesting. I've never thought about it in, in quite that way. And it doesn't seem to be that it's just kind of our more woke allies like France and Germany and Australia and Canada that you're saying that they rely on American exceptionalism or American strength. But they like to use America as a punching bag, I guess, to gain their own woke points. And the same thing with the NBA, the same thing with a lot of major corporations. They depend on the American economy, obviously, America being the strongest country in the world. But at the same time, they know that they'll gain points both here and abroad 
by bashing America as systemically racist and, you know, an enemy of social justice or whatever it is. Is that kind of what you're describing? Yeah, I think you described it very well. I, I would call it the court jester syndrome, where once the court is stable, then they hire a jester to come in and make fun of them on the pretense that they're not going to be dangerous mm-hmm. enough to disrupt the workings of the court. So we have in this system market capitalism, free enterprise, and the protection of private property. And that's makes us, that makes uh, Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates or any of these leftists very wealthy. And then they have court jesters. These are the people in the universities that make fun of it and they kind of amuse it. They go, they sign on to the New Green Deal. They do all these left wing things. But in the old days, there was an area where you couldn't intrude upon. You didn't go in and break up monopolies like, you know, Facebook. They thought they could control their their capitalist juggernaut and control the court jesters. I don't think they can anymore because I think mm. the Biden administration is hijacked by Elizabeth Warren and AOC and the squad. And I think pretty soon the woke Wall Street, woke Silicon Valley, woke NBA, all of these institutions are going to have to deal with real socialist agendas that I don't think even right. their, you know, their protections that they have from the consequences of their own game plan or ideology is going to help them. And we'll, we'll see about that. But yeah, it, it's very dishonest and it works on the transatlantic sense in the same fashion. They view us as monolithically capitalist and productive and strong with all these aircraft carriers and this huge domestic consumer market. And then they can kind of make fun of it up to a point. And up that point has been reached now because when they look at the rioting and they look at the name changing and the statute changing, uh, toppling in the school, they think this is crazy. Wait a minute. We've got a reign of terror in the United States. This is like the Jacobin takeover of the French Revolution. And these people don't understand that if they change this country, we're not going to have a market. We're not going to have protection. We're not going to have it. We went too far in making fun of it. And now we're starting to see, you know, actually conservative. So Eastern Europe especially is worried. They're much more conservative than we are. And now, as you point out, people in the UK, France, people in Southern Europe, they're very scary because it's not just France going left wing. It's this huge economic and military power. And when they look at retired generals who start lecturing about, as David Petraeus did, about taking down statues or accusing Donald Trump of being an insurrectionist or a Mussolini or uh, Hitler-like, that gets them even more scared. My God, they think the Pentagon is becoming a national liberation army. And so I think they're very terrified. Yeah. And it seems like, as they should be, they seem to have a more clear perspective on what's going on here in America than we do. I don't really see an about face by these corporations and by the establishment media to say, oh, we're, we've caused or we've helped at least exacerbate some of the chaos and the division and the weakness that we are seeing precipitated throughout the country. And so we're going to we're going to stop or we're going to, you know, start criticizing the violence or we're going to start, you know, calling uh, Antifa and BLM what they are. I don't really see that kind of correction within the United States in corporate America and in and in the media. Do you think that at some no, point they will wake up? That's a very good question. They did not wake up in 1917 when Lenin said to all of the 
uh, Russian aristocrats that wanted to abandon the czar and did and try to make a deal to be saved and to augment and abet the Bolsheviks or the Kerenskyites, the legitimate socialist uh, opposition to the czars, they all thought they could deal with Lenin. Lenin's attitude was you give a capitalist rope and he'll hang himself because they're greedy. So I think the left's attitude is we don't want to preserve market capitalism. We want to take over these big corporations and make them state-run enterprises and wake them up or have them woke sources of jobs and money for us. And I don't think the corporations quite understand that. So maybe they're going to fail and be, as they did in Venezuela and Cuba and right. outsmart themselves, or maybe they're going to wake up as they did in France in 1793 and, you know, Robespierre ended up on the guillotine, or maybe in the, as they did in the 60s, they thought they could handle the 60s revolution. And finally, they realized, no, we can't. We got to elect a guy yeah. like Ronald Reagan. So there is a pushback right now. But what's different is that we've never seen with this electronic octopus, the control of our means of accessing information, communicating social media, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and all of that is controlled by the left, so it's much harder to gauge or calibrate whether this grassroots pushback can be sustained or how big it is. But you're starting to see people on the left, people who've been fired from newspapers, actors that can't get jobs, people who've been canceled out for one word, they're starting to murmur that this is not sustainable because the left right. is starting to eat its own and they've been eaten and they don't want it. Right. And it's interesting because a lot of, obviously, these people on the left who are advancing these causes and these goals, they, you know, they're soft towards socialism and communism. But isn't the combining of corporate and governmental power also a form of fascism? And these are the very same people who say that they're standing against the fascists who they say are the conservatives or the Trump supporters. Yeah, that was the paradigm that that fascism did in Europe in the 1930s, whether it was in Spain or, or Italy or Germany, that is, they went to the industrial class, what they called the industrial class, and they said, look, we're going to give you all these markets and you're going to have a monopoly on and you're going to make a lot of profits because we have an expansionary agenda overseas. But we don't want communism. We don't want leftism. We don't want freedom. We don't want unions. We don't want any of that. But you're going to have these. And they all signed up for it. And notice that there are no unions in Amazon. I mean, Amazon said that they wanted to promote workers' rights and that mail-in balloting was wonderful. And then we find out that Jeff Bezos is trying to crush a union movement in uh, Alabama by outlawing, trying to outlaw mail-in ballots, which he said can't be verified. He sounds like a right-wing reactionary. But they're starting to see that this deal they made with the left that gave them monopolies and cartels an absolute exemption from, you know, uh, federal jurisdiction or oversight. Uh, they think the left is a little bit more ambitious than they signed up for. The left wants to control them. And you really saw that after the last election when Mark Zuckerberg and his, his companies and Twitter, they were kind of saying, well, we're going to slant the news and not report about Hunter Biden and deplatform occasionally Donald Trump, but we're not going to cancel him out because if we do that, we're kind of a state-run organization and we're going to lose half the country, our market. And yet the Obamas came out, Biden came out, Hillary came out, all of these left-wing politicians said, shame on you to give Donald Platform a, 
70 million Twitter followers and a huge Facebook audience. You're responsible for all these. So then like a night of the long knives, we woke up on, I guess it was January 11th, and they had destroyed Parler. And then earlier they had deplatformed, they being Twitter and Facebook, Trump for life. And notice the argument they used. It was the 1960s racist uh, lunch count owner or landlord who said to African-Americans, we, we're not infringing on your right to check into my hotel or any hotel. You're not, you can go to any lunch. Just don't go to mine. You know, I, I, I own it. I have a right to say, you know, the First Amendment doesn't cover me. I just don't want you in my lunch counter. I don't want you in my hotel, but, you know, drive 100 miles somewhere else. And the, the courts and the country said, no, that's not realistic. And so we right. they they are playing that role of the racist 1960s. They're saying to Trump or to the Parler people or to us, they're saying, you know what? We believe in free speech, but we don't believe in free reach. So if you want to communi communicate over Twitter, just go get yourself another Twitter, but don't use ours. And then we say, OK, we'll go to Parler. And guess what? One o'clock in the morning on the 11th of January, they shut it down and you can't get it on any yeah. app or any phone. And that's really right. scary because that, that gets back to your point about state run fascism. All right, got to tell you guys about Fundrise. If you're looking to truly diversify your portfolio, Rather than just have your traditional mix of stocks and bonds and mutual funds, then you need Fundrise because you need private real estate. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you are looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth or appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. Fundrise's team of real estate professionals carefully vets and actively manages all of their real estate projects and with their easy to use website, you can track your portfolio's performance and watch as properties across the country are acquired, improved, and operated via dynamic asset updates. So if you are looking to make sure that your portfolio is top notch, then you need help from Fundrise. They make it easy and accessible to you. And so make sure that you check them out. Go to fundrise.com slash relatable. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash relatable. Fundrise.com slash relatable. If you could just leave people with maybe one tip or, or one piece of advice, you know, the average person kind of feels powerless in the midst of all of this. Um, do you have any, you know, wisdom or, I don't know, a little bit of optimism or hope for people who are just worried about yeah. the direction the country is going and, and what they can do? I do. I would say don't become depressed or disheartened. But remember that we are in a period where the universities, K through 12, the foundations, professional sports, Hollywood, entertainment, Wall Street, and Silicon Valley, they control our culture, our wealth, and our power, and they're woke, but they don't have 51% of the people. And for them to wake up and return to normality and, and honor the Bill of Rights, it requires all of us, even though we're one wink, one bad word, one good word, one facial expression from getting canceled, we don't care. 
We're going to say what we want, when we want, how we want. And the more that we do that, it's sort of like a gla- uh, a screen and we have a big illusion on it. And we need to take a sledgehammer in that famous Apple commercial and throw it right through it because there's nothing there because it's not based on ethics, morality or logic. And we can just, you know, there's no logic in saying you can't name a school after George Washington. He's a racist. Can't You can't do that. Does, if you do that, you have no country. So we're going to say, yes, we can. We're going to name whatever we want and then override that. And you can call me anything in the world has no effect on me. When we start to do that, sort of like that famous lawyer, uh, Joseph Welch, in the McCarthy hearings of the 1950s, McCarthy would come like the modern left and say, I have a list here of all these people that I'm going to go after. And he would do things like that, make up stuff kind of like the blacklisting, the Lincoln Project and others have engaged in. And finally, the Army Council said, have you no decency, Senator McCarthy? And as soon as he said that, it was weird. It just it destroyed the the illusion. And McCarthy was rendered what he was kind of an alcoholic has been demagogue. And I think we could do that with a lot of these woke people. You have no control over me. I'm a free person. Say what you want. It has no effect on me. I don't care what you say about me in the New York Times. I don't care what you say about me at the local school board. I'm going to continue. And once we all do that in unison, it's our problem just to finish is remember the Aesop fable about the mice get together and they say, you know, these cats are picking us off one by one. This bad cat. And we never know he's coming. He's so stealthy, so clever. And so they, the mice get together and say, ah, we got an idea. We're going to go put a, a, a collar with a bell on it around that guy's neck. And so every time he comes, he'll be so loud, we'll just he's irrelevant. We can scramble in plenty of time. And then one person in the crowd says, ah, who's going to bell the cat? And no one's willing to be the bell beller of the cat. But we need a lot of them. Mm. Yes. Yes, that is so good. Thank you so much. That truly is encouraging. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. We'll make sure that people know where to follow you and support you and the Hoover Institution. Thank you so much for uh, for talking to us today. Yes. 